The good news is modern building uh, standards are much more earthquake resistant. They are much more likely to have reinforced steel in them and things like that. Our big concern in southeast Missouri, and if you've been down there, I'm sure you know this, there's the vast, uh, there are many, many thousands of what we call unreinforced masonry buildings, mm-hmm. usually old brick structures. They were you know, built 100 years ago, and they're very sturdy, and it's fine when the ground's not shaking, but when the ground shakes, those unreinforced masonry buildings are the biggest risk we have because they do not hold up well to shaking. It causes a lot of debris, and it can cause a lot of um, injuries and fatalities in an earthquake. So a focal point for us is uh, identifying those uh, unreinforced masonry buildings and seeing what we can do to recommend improvement. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Jeff Briggs is the Earthquake Program Manager for the Missouri State Emergency Management Agency. He's also the serves on the Central United States Earthquake Consortium for the state of Missouri. He's also a member of the Missouri Seismic Safety Commission. He's a point of contact for the Great Shakeout, which was held in October. He's a point of contact for the Save Coalition of the SEMA. He's the Radiological Emergency Preparedness Officer for Missouri SEMA. And last but not least, he's the current president of the National Earthquake Management Program Managers Group. Wow. Jeff, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. <laughs> well, hey, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be with you guys. I don't know if, if I... If I truly all did all those things, I don't know if I'd have time to talk to you. So I appreciate that great introduction. <laughs> well, it, it maybe it shows that uh, we, we're really lean and mean at the state level because you wear a multitude of hats while only probably getting one salary. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, just the one salary. I've got you, you listed a bunch of organizations, and I'm really just a, 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 a portion of many of those organizations. But yeah, I'm, I, uh, you're right. The Emergency Management Agency is not a large agency, but we do have a lot of responsibilities. So yeah, all of, all of us keep our hats in, a, in many different rings. I understand that completely. Now, first question off, before we get into the earthquake seismology kind of discussions, how does a guy who gets a degree in journalism from Mizzou end up being the earthquake program manager for the state of Missouri? Boy, you've really done your research, but uh, you're you're, uh, you're absolutely right. I got a I got a uh, J school degree uh, a while ago, and I think the key to uh, that is when you're the earthquake program manager, as you kind of discussed with your hat and a bunch of different rings, um, communication coordination is a big part of the job. Um, not only do I work with uh, different groups of experts, like the Seismic Safety Commission you mentioned. The SAVE Coalition, that's an acronym, by the way. It stands for Structural Assessment and Visual Evaluation. It's just a fancy big bunch of words that talks about trained volunteers that are structural experts that go out and examine buildings after, a, uh, after an earthquake or after a tornado. But my, the biggest part of my job as the earthquake program manager is to uh, make people aware that there's a risk in the New Madrid seismic zone 
and to talk about uh, what that risk is, what the history is, and what they can do about it to prepare. So my communication skills kind of come in handy there. Well, why don't you go ahead and unpack that a little bit for us? How has the state uh, prepared for the event uh, of the New Madrid <clears throat> fault uh, having some issues? You bet. Yeah. And, and you know, it go, it's interesting that you talked in your show last week about Ivan Browning, that a prediction he made 30 years ago last week didn't turn out to be true, but uh, it, it did a lot of my job for me when we talk about uh, earthquake preparedness, letting people know about the risk. Um, the outgrowth of that 30 years ago was that it went on to create different groups like the Seismic Safety Commission in Missouri, uh, uh, the SAVE Coalition in Missouri. They started in the early 90s, and it was a big part of that outgrowth of all the increased awareness. And so that really turned out to be a silver lining for organizations like Missouri State Emergency Management Agency. Um, we spend a lot of time planning and training and doing exercises. Um, that, that's a big function of what the State Emergency Management Agency does. We uh, learn all we can about the different risks to the state, and we try to get people ready for it. In the case of earthquakes, that's a big, big challenge. <clears throat> Excuse me because there hasn't been a big one lately. Um, the, mm-hmm. thing is, the thing we fight more than anything else when it comes to the earthquake risk is apathy. People haven't lived through it. They don't feel it personally like they do perhaps a flood or a tornado that they may have experienced or that someone in their family may have experienced recently. So, so the earthquake risk is a challenge for us because people aren't front of mind with it. But what I try to remind them is that although you may not have lived through one, you may not have felt shaking lately. When it does happen, and the scientists say it is going to happen one of these days, it is going to be the biggest and the most damaging disaster in the history of this state. So that's why we try to get ready for it. Now, I know that there's the great shakeout, which happens every October, and individuals and businesses kind of prepare for that. Discuss that a little bit about... You know, you get schools on board, you get civic organizations, you get city governments, etc. What exactly do you ask them to do? And then what kind of feedback do you get back after the event to replan for the next one and make sure that people are, are going to be safer? Yeah, the ShakeOut is the biggest single awareness event we have every year. We have about half a million people just in Missouri that participate. And one of the reasons it's so effective is that it's so simple. We tell people that um, because the earthquake risk is real in Missouri, we want people to know what to do ahead of time because um, earthquakes are unique. Unlike any other natural disaster, they're going to happen with no warning because scientists haven't figured out how to predict it. So what we do is we talk about what to know when the shaking starts because it's just going to start and you're going to be doing whatever you're normally doing that day. So the shakeout drill is a three-step process, drop, cover, hold on. When the shaking starts, you drop to the ground, so before you get knocked over by the shaking, and then you cover up any way you can. If you've got a sturdy table or a desk nearby, that's ideal. Um, But if not, just cover your head. Crouch down the ground and cover your head as best you can because the number one way people worldwide get hurt or killed by earthquakes is by falling debris. And so we want to protect ourselves from falling debris. So you drop, you cover, and then you hold on to whatever's protecting you 
until the shaking stops. So we do this every year. It's always the third Thursday in October every year. And it's not just Missouri, it's the whole region. And in fact, it's many parts of the world where there's an earthquake risk. Millions of people all over the world participate this in this simple drop, cover, and hold on technique every year. It just takes a minute to do, but we do it every year because we want to continually remind people what to do when the shaking starts. Now, Jeff, walk us through a couple scenarios here that I, I will pose to you because uh, people who are listening at home or maybe they're driving, and if an earthquake happens, they need to know what to, to do, and maybe they haven't thought about it, and so as we discuss it, it will go into their memory banks, and whenever, not if, whenever that does occur, they will try to pull that back out. So if you're in your house, you know, and something happens like that, drop, cover, and uh, or drop, say it again. <laughs> say the Drop, three. cover, hold on. Drop, cover, hold on. Okay. Now, what do you do after the initial shock happens? So what you do is you drop, when you're, when you're covered up and you're on the ground, as soon as the sh- you stay there until the shaking stops, then after the shaking stops and you're confident that the shaking has stopped, give it a few seconds to settle down, then you can poke your head out, take a look around, see if it's okay. If it's okay, then the first thing to do is uh, check on anybody that you may be aware of to make sure they're okay as well. And then if it's if there's still no shaking, you can safely go outside. And then you can think about things like calling 911 if the service is still up. Um, listen to a local broadcast station to learn the very latest if you have a radio and if you can get to that. And so you wait till the shaking stops where you check on other people and then you go outside. The key to that is, with earthquakes, it never happens just once. There are always aftershocks. So be ready to do drop, cover, hold on all over again. Okay, so we've we've dropped, we've covered, we've held on, we've waited, and we've kind of gone outside. Uh, Maybe there's been some aftershocks, and if there isn't any damage, it would probably be okay to re-enter a residence or a business. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes. If uh, if the shaking seems to have stopped and it looks like there's no damage, then great. You're fortunate. Uh, you can you can uh, check on people, check on neighbors, uh, listen to broadcast or internet information for the very latest, and then you can uh, then you can uh, go back to uh, safe activities. Just being aware that aftershocks could happen. Okay. Now I'm driving down the street and I feel the earthquake as I'm driving, what do I do? Okay. Um, Remember that protecting yourself from falling debris is the thing to do. So if you're in a car, then that's a good thing because you have something to protect you from things falling on you. So what you want to do is slow down and safely pull over to the side of the road as soon as you can. Don't park underneath things that might fall on you. Don't park next to a big telephone pole or under a bridge, for example. So you pull over to the side of the road in a safe spot, and then you just wait it out in your car because that car is good protection. Yeah, we don't want to pull up under a tree or anything like that. We want to make sure that we're uh, in in an open area. I was just wondering about that trees, uh, you know, falling debris from a tree. What's a a short list of things to not park under? (laughs) Well, uh, a big tree would be something to avoid if you can. Uh, Telephone pole, uh, bridge. 
if you're right next to a big old building that looks like it's an old brick building, that might not be ideal because old brick buildings can uh, can crumble and things can fall off the side. Generally, anything where there's a heavy object that could fall is good to avoid. That's useful. Now, I have read somewhere, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, that sometimes if you're walking through a building or a house and there's no place to drop cover and hide, uh, excuse me, drop cover and hold on, that you should get in, into a doorway. Yes or no? <clears throat> doorway is not the best advice. Once upon a time, many years ago, people used to talk about doorways, and but that's not the advice people get now. The key is avoiding debris problem with doorways is you're probably going to have to walk or run a little ways to get to it, which exposes you to falling debris. And of course, what is the thing that's hooked to a doorway is usually a big old swinging door that might hit you. So a doorway is not ideal. If you cannot get underneath anything, then your best advice is to quickly glance around where you are, step away from anything that might fall on you, and crouch down maybe in a corner of a room or up against a wall where things aren't going to fall on you. The other thing about that is, knowing that the risk is debris, look around the spaces you spend the most time, uh, your bedroom, your office, your school, your business. And now, before the shaking starts, if there are big, heavy things that might fall, move them or secure them. A lot of the simple stuff we talk about doing is if there's a big old wobbly bookcase next to your bed, for example, uh, move it or secure it to the wall. If there's a heavy object on a tall shelf, uh, move it to a lower shelf. If there's a light fixture that you really don't know if it's well hooked to the ceiling, this would be a time to get it hooked up. So um, those are easy things you can do ahead of time. So that way when the shaking does stop, start, it's going to be pretty easy to avoid things falling on you. Well, let's take that a, a step further. Let's say that the earthquake has happened. It has caused some damage and fairly severe damage. And I know that you mentioned, you know, to call 911 if 911 is working, which leads me to this mm-hmm. point. What kind of preparation do we need for supplies? Because it could be that water, sewer, the food supply is interrupted, telecommunications are interrupted. What would you suggest that individuals or families or businesses do to prepare to have like a, an emergency pack or something like that? Yeah, this is an important point, and you're absolutely right. After a big earthquake, after an earthquake that's along the lines of what happened a couple hundred years ago, the big magnitude 7.5 or so quakes that happened out on the boot heel of the state, um, when those happened a little over 200 years ago, there there wasn't a lot of population. But now the impact area for a big New Madrid zone earthquake, which includes big towns like St. Louis, like Memphis, Tennessee, and all the spaces in between, uh, roughly 7 million people are living in the impact zone. Estimates are that day one after a big earthquake, about 2.5 million people will be without power, and about a million people will be without water. So if you think about that impact, I think it does drive home the point that it's really good to do some prep and get some supplies ahead of time. Now, some of these supplies are good for any disaster, that might hit a tornado or a flood or something like that, but they're especially good for earthquakes as well. Um, a radio that works on battery or there's a crank radio is a great thing. We mentioned that people will be without water, so a good supply of potable water is great, 
the uh, the uh, guideline says one gallon of water per person per day, both for sanitation and for drinking, is ideal. Um, blankets to keep you warm because we may be up, depending on the time of year, it may be cold. Um, flashlights, a little bit of a food that lasts a long time. Uh, things like that are great. A lot of that's general first aid. It's a first aid kit as well. But uh, the real focus is on uh, heat and food and water if you're going to be without those things for a long time after an earthquake, which could happen. You know, I've, I've read a couple things related to that, uh, especially water, where we do have water supplies in our basements or our hot water heater is a great storage <laughs> bin mm-hmm. of, of water. But there's a problem in an earthquake with a hot water heater, right? This is a, a really good point, and it's one of the things we talk about that are simple fixes for people to prepare in advance. You're right. If you're a homeowner, you've got a uh, good water supply right there. So let's say you've got a 40-gallon water heater, which is common, um, but in an earthquake, that thing could fall over. And not only have you got a big mess on your hands after that, but you have lost a great source of fresh water because that 40 gallons is no longer available to you. So what we talk about doing in advance, it's one of those simple things, kind of like securing potential debris. There's a strap that you can get at a hardware store that doesn't cost much. Uh, Strap your water heater to the wall so that it stays upright in an earthquake. Um, That will preserve a source of fresh water for you. So you're right. That's a great suggestion. I know some people think, uh, you know, they put that the toilet thing in to keep the toilet uh, bowl clean it's like a blue thing or a green thing but what they Mm -hmm. do is that's another source of water uh if they would just leave it alone is the tank of a toilet it's not contaminated yet it's still okay to use unless they've got one of those detergent kinds of things in there that keep their toilet bowl clean (laughs) yeah good point the tank the back part of the toilet is is a little bit more uh fresh water and uh, yeah you're right it's a good point now as you have gone and worked with other agencies like the uh, Seismic Safety Commission, and I kind of want to go through these a little bit, the SAVE Coalition and the uh, Central United States Earthquake Consortium. What kinds of things do you glean from other states and other cities and other uh, emergency prepared uh, management program managers as, they, as you guys discuss these things? What, what kind of things are on the itinerary for discussion? Um, yeah, that, that's an important point because unlike on the West Coast, the, uh, which, is, which is largely California and maybe Alaska where most of the risk is out there, uh, a New Madrid seismic zone earthquake centered in the boot heel touches a lot of states. And so we've got regional organizations where we kind of try to coordinate um, awareness programs, safety programs, uh, because we share the same risk. Um, I work with my counterparts and with organizations in Arkansas, Illinois, Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, you know, all those states that are touched by the risk. And we do uh, coordinated regional uh, communications programs. We do coordinated regional safety assessment programs. For example, we've got one where where the Seismic Safety Commission uh, works to provide free seismic assessments to public school districts. Um, We have trained volunteers that can come assess buildings, uh, and they look at mainly the older structures um, 
in school districts in southeast Missouri and provide them a pretty detailed report about which, what, what's the status of your buildings and what can be done to improve them. We work with uh, surrounding states on save coalition equivalents. There are a few other states that also have trained volunteer assessors that are ready to deploy quickly after an emergency. Um, for example, um, you may remember in Joplin, there was a, uh, what was that, about seven or eight years ago, there right. was a big tornado down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what year was that? But anyway, um, we're, the SAVE Coalition is prepared for earthquakes, but we can also be deployed for tornadoes because that's another instance where buildings are structurally damaged. And so we work with surrounding states and tornadoes. Not only we can help people after a big disaster, but it's also great practice for us when an earthquake comes. And so we coordinate with our surrounding states on how we can do uh, damage assessments. We also coordinate, and you mentioned CUSEC, which is the Central U.S. Earthquake Consortium. That's kind of a shell organization where a lot of us coordinate our resources and uh, throughout the New Madrid seismic zone, and we work on a lot of these things there. Folks, you can't be complacent with this stuff. Uh, my question, Jeff, I know you, you had mentioned earlier that seems like out of sight, out of mind, and we do get complacent with this. How complacent are we in St. Louis and large metropolitan areas like Memphis also? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, complacency is a, it's a risk that we're always uh, coming up against, and it's because people haven't experienced a large earthquake lately, which is kind of understandable. It's, it's not front of mind because they haven't lived through it personally. But we've got to, that's why we've got to make sure people understand the risk. Just my one-minute primer on what the risk is. The New Madrid seismic zone is based down in the boot heel. It is historically the largest active seismic zone in the U.S. east of the Rocky Mountains. There are over 200 measured earthquakes every year that are, that, are, that are happening in southeast Missouri. A lot of them too small to be felt, but if you're in southeast Missouri, you feel earthquakes every year there. And so the risk is very real there. And the other challenging thing about it is that... Um, the, uh, because of the geology of the Midwest versus what people are used to out on the West Coast, the damage and the shaking is felt for a much farther distance away. Out, out on the West Coast, it's kind of mountainous. The rocks are kind of broken up. And so those earthquake waves tend to disperse fairly quickly. A big earthquake in Los Angeles, for example, is not likely to be felt or have any damage in San Francisco. Here in the Midwest, though, a big earthquake in the New Madrid seismic zone is going to be felt for hundreds of miles in every direction. The big earthquakes of 1811 and 1812, some of the biggest in U.S. history, were felt all the way on the east coast of the U.S. They were felt in the newly constructed nation's capital. They were felt all over. Damage and shaking travels about 10 times farther here than it does on the west coast. So that's a a message I always want to get to everybody, which is it's coming one of these days and you're going to feel it. St. Louis is a couple hours away from the epicenter of the New Madrid seismic zone, but it will be felt and there will be damage from a big earthquake in St. Louis. Now, so that's, qu- that's why we want to keep people reminding of it. Yeah, and question on that is, is that because, and as I was doing some research for this for last week's show, is that because the New Madrid quake was an intraplate earthquake versus an interplate earthquake? Well, the, the main difference is, and I touched on it a little bit, but probably not much, on the West Coast, it's kind of a broken up, so, that, so the rocks kind of disperse it. 
It's not the case in this part of the country. Mm-hmm. The uh, geology is cooler and flatter, and, uh, and unfortunately those shakeways travel much more effectively here in the Midwest. And the other geographic challenge is um, the, the New Madrid seismic zone is right underneath the Mississippi River down in southeast Missouri. And uh, riverbeds, loose, sandy, wet soil like the Missouri and the Mississippi River, carry shock waves from earthquakes very effectively. So um, the, the, a big New Madrid earthquake is felt strongly all up and down the Mississippi River, the Ohio River, the Missouri River, which is why those shockwaves travel very effectively, unfortunately, up to St. Louis. That's that's really incredible. It's it's kind of mind-boggling that uh, you know we get a lot of benefit from the river, and yet the river can uh, go crazy. And as we as we were told stories as kids that the river ran backwards, and we know that it was just an, kind of an upheaval of uh, the wave action that probably made the river look like it appeared to run backwards. And uh, we talked a little bit right. about the uh, lake that was formed down in Tennessee, I believe it was, uh, from mm-hmm. that. Looking at the site, this is off of the Cusick uh, site, the Central United States Earthquake Consortium, and they kind of link into the University of Memphis Center for Earthquake Research, uh, and they show all of the earthquakes that have that have happened since June of 2020, and there's a total of 943 in this region. And as I look at the map and the intensity of these things, most are in the in the last six months. Some in the past week. There are a few that are in the past day, and the magnitude are usually like four or five, something like that. Is this kind of a common thing? And, uh, you know, how how important is this information in understanding how you guys plan? Well, the uh, the, uh, it's in, the the interesting numbers you're sharing about about the 900 or so since June, the, uh, it depends on how, on how far down you want to go when you measure them. Uh, it sounds like they're measuring any any earthquake, underground movement at all. And so the numbers can get very big very quickly. You're absolutely right about that. But we average more than 200 a year that are over, like, say, a magnitude one and a half or two, where it it might actually have a chance of something being felt. But either way you measure it, um, it certainly shows that there's significant activity there. It's a very active seismic zone. We're getting measurements, as you mentioned, all the time. Now, magnitude is a way to look at how it's the energy released by an earthquake. It's a, it's a way to look at how serious the uh, impact of an earthquake might be. Um, we don't we don't get hundreds of fours and fives because fours and fives are significant enough to where you feel some local shaking. But uh, we we may get um, a handful um, of something in the two or three range every year, and every few years we might get something like a magnitude five, which is enough to where there is going to be some shaking and perhaps some local damage. It seems like there's some uh, active locations, i.e., uh, from Oklahoma into Kansas, down uh, mm-hmm. into Arkansas and southern, southeast Missouri, where the New Madrid area is, and then in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, north, kind of uh, cutting across northern Georgia into the Knoxville area, uh, that have been pretty active here recently. Are um, Do you feel that you have enough 
people in the SAVE Coalition to assist you around the state to do some of the things that you need to do? Well, I'll tell you, we have Missouri has the most robust volunteer assessment organization in the country other than the state of California wow. when it comes to this. So we're very happy. We were very fortunate. We've had a program that's going, been going since the early 90s, and we've got right around 1,000 people who are trained volunteers that are, that are set up in our deployment database. So that's a lot of folks. However, if a big earthquake happens, like the ones that happened 200 years ago, no matter how many we have, it's not going to be enough mm-hmm. because the uh, the uh, damage to buildings and the scope of it is going to be enormous. So we're we're glad that we've got a good, robust group, but uh, it'll be all hands on deck if a big one happens. So if there are some engineers or architects or building inspectors who would like to participate in SAVE Coalition but may not be knowledgeable about it, what should they do? We would love to have a more people join our organization. What we're looking for is, as you mentioned, engineers, architects, building officials, anybody with a structural background would be good for us. And really the best thing to do is just Google Missouri Save Coalition. Uh, we've got a website that gives a really good overview of how we work and what we do. And we have training classes every year. Well, not this year because of COVID, but we have training classes every year where it's free and people can come train with us. We explain how it works. We explain the structural basics and the things we look for after de- uh, during a deployment after a disaster. And uh, the beauty of this for a lot of folks who are looking for professional development hours uh, for their that for their professions require, we provide free professional development hours for taking our training. And then after you've taken the training, you are a Save Coalition member for three years. We ask that you renew every three years. Then we uh, put you on our database, and if there's a disaster, we know how to find you and contact you for a voluntary deployment uh, if, if you're available. Now, I know one of the questions I had asked you in our email uh, transactions back and forth was about the code compliance or were there building codes, and I know there's the international code that many municipalities or cities might follow, but in the state of Missouri, you essentially said that there really wasn't a specific code for building for earthquakes. What what should be done related to that from your perspective, or should there be something done? Yeah, there, in Missouri, excuse me, <clears throat> in Missouri, there's no statewide uh, seismic building code. It's done at the local level. And of course, from my perspective, uh, we're always very interested in getting building codes as safe and as robust as they can possibly be. Uh, some cities and counties have more than others, and uh, we're we're uh, we're happy to work with all of them to uh, to get get the codes as safe as we can possibly be. But that really is in, in the state of Missouri. That's a local jurisdiction decision. So, radiological emergency preparedness officer, what are are you uh, doing? Some uh, X rays of the of the ground? <laughs> yeah, that that's an area. There there are a team of people at SEMA, much smarter than me, that work with us every day. But I'm, I'm a, a small part of the team. Um, that refers to uh, nuclear power plants. There are two nuclear power plants in the state of Missouri that we work with. One of them is called the Callaway plant, and it's based in uh, central Missouri, just a little bit east of Jeff City. The other is the Cooper power plant that's actually based in southeast Nebraska, but a little of its range bleeds into 
extreme northwestern Missouri. So this, this team of folks works with those two power plants to make sure they meet all the safety regulations of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And that means that we spend time with them uh, on a regular basis uh, talking about plans. Are they ready if there's ever an incident? Are there training and exercises that need to be done? And we work with them um, on all those training and exercises because in an actual emergency, uh, we would be working very closely with uh, the plant officials, uh, SEMA and others, to notify the public of what's going on and what protective actions need to be taken and things like that. So that, that's what radiologic preparedness refers to is the way we work for the safety of the two, two nuclear power plants. Now, I know I mentioned also that you were the current president of the National Earthquake Management Program Managers Group, and for uh, you have another six months roughly, I guess, to hold that position. What goals did you have going into that uh, position as president, and what have you seen? I know COVID has kind of uh, put some of the uh, a damper on that because generally people would meet in person. But what, what kind of things were you hoping to accomplish this year in that organization? Well, I'll tell you what. This is a uh, this is organization of people like me in earthquake active states all over the country, and we work a lot with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, at that level as well. Uh, the goal is to coordinate things on a nationwide basis. Uh, that means national national awareness campaigns, national safety campaigns, and it also means sharing best practices. A lot of the things I do in Missouri are ideas that I've taken from other states where it's been effective. And, and vice versa, really. That, that it's, it's, an, it's idea sharing and coordinating at, at the national level uh, best practices. For, as one example, one focal point, both for the state of Missouri and at the national level, is earthquake insurance. That's a big deal because in the last 20 years or so, uh, the earthquake insurance rate, especially in the heaviest hit zones in southeast Missouri, has really dropped off to nothing. Earthquake insurance for a homeowner has to be bought separately. It's not part of your standard earthquake insurance. In St. Louis, it's fairly affordable because you're not in the very highest risk area. But in southeast Missouri, the latest numbers that show less than 15% of homeowners have earthquake insurance because it has become so expensive and there's such a high deductible to it. So that really worries us as emergency planners, and of course it should worry folks in southeast Missouri too, because if a big earthquake does hit and they lose their homes, if they don't have earthquake insurance, they're not going to afford to rebuild in many cases. So uh, so the dealing with that earthquake insurance issue is a big emphasis area for Missouri and at the national level, because a lot of states are struggling with the same thing we're struggling with. I'm sure that's like flood insurance to a degree, that you know if you're in a flood zone, you have to have flood insurance. Well, you don't have to. Maybe you do if, if you're borrowing to purchase a house. But at the same time, sometimes those are going to be very expensive, which leads me to this next question. We've become so dependent upon protecting things as it relates to flooding. How much building is going on down in the area? I'm talking about structural building of new buildings, whether they be commercial, industrial, or residential, in areas that are probably a little questionable related to an earthquake zone? Well, there's, there's certainly, there are always new structures going up in the, uh, in the new managed seismic zone. The good news is modern building uh, standards 
are much more earthquake resistant. They are much more likely to have reinforced steel in them and things like that. Our big concern in southeast Missouri, and if you've been down there, I'm sure you know this, there's the vast, uh, there are many, many thousands of what we call unreinforced masonry buildings, mm-hmm. usually old brick structures. They were you know, built 100 years ago, and they're very sturdy, and it's fine when the ground's not shaking, but when the ground shakes, those unreinforced masonry buildings are the biggest risk we have because they do not hold up well to shaking. It causes a lot of debris, and it can cause a lot of um, injuries and fatalities in an earthquake. So a focal point for us is uh, identifying those uh, unreinforced masonry buildings and seeing what we can do to recommend improvements. That's why we do that school assessment program. We go down and look at school districts that have old unreinforced masonry buildings and to see if we can recommend improvements. Um, It's a big job, and certainly no one has the money to upgrade all those thousands of buildings, but we try to uh, take every step we can, and that, I would say, is the biggest uh, structural risk we have in southeast Missouri. And by the way, downtown St. Louis is loaded with those unreinforced masonry buildings, too. Exactly, exactly. That would be uh, disastrous. Have they all been evaluated by uh, owners down there, or are are there still some uh, kind of empty blank lines on your paper related to downtown St. Louis? Um, well, I, I don't know the answer to that. Certainly, they have not all been evaluated. Uh, some have and some haven't. The challenge, of course, is that upgrading those old buildings to a modern uh, seismic resistance standard, very, very expensive. And, you know, like anything else, uh, rehabbing old buildings gets pricey. It does. It does. You know, this has been a great conversation, Jeff. I appreciate your time today, and I hope that the listeners have found benefit from this. And we will post this on our podcast and include some links for everyone. It's very important that you prepare yourself uh, individually and for your family, if you have a family, and maybe uh, talk about this at your business, because it's, like you said, Jeff, out of sight, out of mind. Unless we've experienced this, we're not necessarily going to be prepared for this. And that that's, was a great statement, and I think uh, should stick in everybody's mind. We've been talking to Jeff Briggs, Earthquake Program Manager for the Missouri State Emergency Management Agency. Jeff, thanks very much for being on St. Louis in Tune. Hey. Thank you for your time. Great conversation. We are glad you decided to listen to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. We know there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and we are glad that you have chosen to listen to us. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.